Good morning, everyone. If we've never met, my name is Tony Boscarino. I'm one of the pastors here. And today we are finishing our series called Praying with Paul, where we've been taking four weeks to dive deeply into the Apostle Paul's prayers for the churches. And I'm sad to see the end of the series because I really enjoyed it and uh, it impacted my heart a lot as I was growing through this. But today we find ourselves at the end. And so as, as it's the last week, let's talk about where we've been. So let's throw that map up there. Um, last week we talked about Paul's prayer to the church in Philippi, which you can see on the map there, which is on the coast of what would be modern day Greece. And what we talked about last week is that Paul deeply loved this church. He cared so much about these people. And out of his love for them, he prayed that they would grow in a Christ-like love, a love that is real, true, deep, and founded in the knowledge of God. Then going back to the first two weeks of the series, we talked about Ephesus, which you can see on the coast there would be modern-day Turkey. And Paul, his, his heart for that church was that their eyes, their hearts would be enlightened to know God better. So that was week one. Week two, we talked about his prayer for them to understand the height, length, depth, and width of God's incredible love and to grasp this love that transcends all understanding. Now what I want to do is just talk about Ephesus a little bit more because it leads us into our next prayer for today. So Paul was in Ephesus for about three years, and when Paul was there, he was preaching the gospel, he was teaching, he was making disciples, and one of the men that he met there was a, name, a man by the name of Epaphras. So Epaphras accepted Christ through Paul's teaching in Ephesus, he was discipled by him, and then he was sent back to his hometown to share the gospel with his friends and family, and his hometown was Colossae, which is what we see on the map. So Colossae is about 100 miles inland from Ephesus. And what's interesting about Colossae is this was a town that Paul was actually never in. It was not on any of his missionary journeys. He wouldn't have any connection to Colossae outside of his good friend Epaphras. What's interesting to know about Colossae is that it would have been like a small country town during Paul's day. So it's not very big. It was by far the smallest town, city that he had written to in any of the books that we have in the Bible. So Ephesus, remember, was like top five most populous cities in the world at that time. So Ephesus is like New York City in L.A. Philippi, more like Kansas City. Colossae, more like Ashland, okay? So it's like good country people that he's, he's writing to here. And so what happens is Epaphras, he heads back to Colossae, spreads the gospel, people start accepting Christ, the church grows, and then five years later, Paul, who right in the time of this writing, he's in Rome, and he is under house arrest, he hears that there's some issues going on with the church at Colossae. And so they were struggling in different ways. Specifically, what they were doing is they were mixing Christianity with some Eastern philosophy beliefs. There was a growing presence of legalism that was taking root within the church. There was talk of worshiping these angelic beings, which was not God's intent or heart for them. And there were some early forms of this heresy, which became known as Gnosticism. And I'm not going to explain it, but really simply what it means is you have Jesus plus some special knowledge. And that is not the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is it's Jesus only. So Paul writes his letter to the uh, Colossians. 
to speak to these issues they're facing. So his heart is to point them back to the truth of who God is and then also help them understand the supremacy of Jesus, that he is really over all things, and to help them understand the work of Christ. And so that's what he's writing this letter to, uh, to explain to them. But Paul, he doesn't just tell them what they're doing wrong, and he doesn't just tell them what they need to do and what they need to believe. He starts out every letter with a prayer, and that's what we're going to look at today. Because he always was asking God to do what only he could do in the lives of the believers. And so before we jump in, let's also pray and ask God to do what only he could do in us as we open his word. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, God, we come to you this morning and we want to hear from you. Lord, open our heart to receive your word. Help us to be encouraged. Help us to be challenged. And then to leave this place with a desire to then follow what we hear this morning. God, I know that if it's just my words, no one's life will be changed, touched, or transformed. You're the only one that can do that. So God, in the name of Jesus, I just come uh, humbly before you, asking you to work in a way that only you can. In the name of Jesus, amen. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Colossians, and we're going to be in chapter 1, and we're actually going to start in verse 3. So Colossians 1, verse 3. Paul's writing and he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So let's just stop there real quick. Paul, he's only heard of them, which is what the passage says. He didn't meet them. He doesn't know them personally. So what he hears about from Epaphras is that they have accepted the gospel. So he's thanking God for opening their heart to receive the truth of Jesus. And he's thanking God that out of their faith, then they are loving each other. And that is all grounded in the hope that they have that's laid up for them in heaven. And as we talked about in week one, biblical hope and worldly hope are totally different things. Worldly hope is more like a wish, like a little kid who hopes that he gets some certain toy like Legos for Christmas. You know, the kid's like, oh, I hope I get that. I wish I get it. That is not biblical hope. Biblical hope is about confidence and assurance and a soon-to-be-realized reality. And so that is the hope that they have, and he's thanking them that their hope is sealed, they are confident that they will be with the Lord for all eternity. And so that's how he's starting off. Pick it up in the rest of verse 5. He says, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so here is Paul. Um, what he first does, he talks about the gospel that is coming to them is bearing fruit all over the world. So let's throw that map back up there. So again, Paul is writing. He's under house arrest in Rome. And if you look at these other cities, you see Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, Ephesus, Colossae, all these are places that the gospel is growing and bearing fruit. And so you can imagine Paul in Rome. He's writing these letters, just thinking about how all the known world to him, the world that he knows, the gospel is growing, exploding, and bearing fruit. And it's doing the same thing even in Colossae as they heard the gospel through Epaphras. 
And he talks about how it's been bearing fruit since they understood the grace of God in truth. And the word understand, we've kind of touched on this a little bit throughout the series, but it doesn't mean like they just sort of got a gist of it or they just scratched the surface. This word in Greek means to be thoroughly acquainted with, to know accurately. So what we're talking about is they understood the gospel at a heart level. Like it had become really, really personal to them. That was the truth of Scripture. And because of that, the gospel was bearing fruit. And they learned it from Epaphras, one of their own, a man who was sent on a mission to go back to his hometown to tell his friends and family about Jesus, the Messiah, and the Savior of the world. And so this is how he's starting. He's starting out his prayer, thanking God for them, encouraging them in God's work in and through them. And then in verse 9, he actually gets to his specific prayer. So let's read verse 9. Verse 9 says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so we're just going to stop there. That's, that's Paul's first prayer. And real simply, what he's doing, his first prayer for them, is he prays for spiritual intelligence. That's the heart of his first prayer. So let's break that down. Again, remember the church at this time is struggling with a mixture of different beliefs, you know, special knowledge. The word knowledge would have been like a hot button issue for them, a particular hot button word in their culture. Because false teaching had moved in to the Colossian church and was leading people to seek experiences, to seek power, to seek knowledge from other sources than Jesus. So today in our culture, it would be like people within the church who go to psychics. It would be like people in the church who check their horoscopes every day to get some like special knowledge into their life. And it was not okay for the church back in Colossae, and it's not okay for us today because our goal, our focus, is to totally seek Jesus because in him we find everything that we need. It's not healthy. It's not safe. And so that's what Paul is speaking into. So he prays that they would grow in their knowledge of God's will, for in him they do have all they need. So specifically, he prays that they would be filled, and that's why it's bolded there. And that is a unique word. In the original Greek, it carries with it this idea of being filled to the very top. Like you are complete. There's nothing left wanting. You are filled to the brim. It was used to describe a ship that was ready to go on a voyage. Like they are filled up. Now they are ready. So maybe I was thinking in our context, it'd be like a family with young kids. And they're going on a road trip and they're loading up the van, right? So they pack in cribs, strollers. Toys, extra clothes, diapers, blankets, stuffed animals, snacks. Like there's hardly any room for any kids, right? That is what we need to think of when we see the word filled. Just like to the max. And that's what he wants for the Colossian church to be filled up with the knowledge of God's word like that. But there's another idea to this, um, this word filled. It also carries with it the connotation of being like under the authority of or led by. So when filled is used in the New Testament, it always speaks to that authority or led by idea. So if you think about in Ephesians where Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, it's being so filled with the Holy Spirit that I am now led by him in the way I live my life. And so that's what Paul is saying to the church, that he wants them to be so filled up with the knowledge of God's will that they are then led by God in their lives. 
And so specifically, he says um, the knowledge of his will. So what does that exactly mean? When I talk to people at Riverview and they're talking about God's will, they're normally asking questions like, is it God's will for me to take this job? Is it God's will for me to buy this house? Is it God's will for me to date this person or not date this person? And God does speak to all those things, but that's not really what Paul is getting at here when he's writing to the church in Colossae. What he's really talking about is he's praying that the the church would understand the bigger picture of what God is doing in the world, his plan for the world, and then how we as believers fit into that plan. That is what Paul is trying to get in hoping that the Colossian church would understand. That's how Paul wants them to grow, and that's also how God desires for us to grow. So practically, what this would look like today would be, say there is a woman who understands God's heart for the the lost in this world. She understands that there is a greater plan, and she has a role to play. And because of that understanding, then she decides to coach her daughter's softball team so that she can make friends with her daughter's friends and friends with her daughter's friends' parents so that somehow they could know Jesus. So she's understanding the greater picture and trying to, you know, walk in her role in it. Or think about a business owner, and he's hiring a potential worker. He might hire someone that's even not as qualified because he feels that the Holy Spirit is calling him to invest in this person's life. It's understanding the greater scheme of what God is doing and how we fit into us. And so this is a good challenge for our prayer lives with God. You know, do we simply ask that he would have his will in whatever particular little situation I'm dealing with? Or do we pray the prayer, God, help me to understand the grander scheme of what you're doing in my life, in my community, in this world, and how I fit into that, and what do you have for me? And so that's really his heart. And so when we talk about growing in the knowledge of God's will, it comes through the Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit reveals that to us, but he uses God's word to reveal to us the knowledge of God's will. And so through my research, um, I came across this quote from Warren Wiersbe. Uh, It says this. He says, We understand the will of God through the word of God. Paul did not encourage the Colossians to seek visions or wait for voices, which is what was happening within their culture. He prayed that they might get deeper into God's word and thus have greater wisdom and insight concerning God's will. He wanted them to have all wisdom, not that they would know everything, but that they would have all the wisdom necessary for making decisions and living to please God. And so that's the heart of this, that we would get into God's word, grow in the knowledge of him. So then in your prayer lives, here's another question. Um, Do you ever pray like, God, help me to understand what your word says? Help me to make sense of this, like, God, I'm I'm not getting it. That's a prayer that we can pray, and it's actually a prayer that's prayed throughout Scripture. If you look at Psalm 119, multiple times in there, that is the prayer. And so here's just a couple examples. Psalm 119, verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're like, the Bible, I know they say it's a lie, but it seems dead to me and I'm not getting it, pray this prayer. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things out of your law. Or look at this other um, passage in 119.34. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with all my heart. And I love the heart of this prayer. It's like, God, teach me your word so that I can live it out, so that I can observe with everything that I am what you are calling me 
to do. And that's really what Paul is getting at. It's like, how do I live this out practically? If you go back to verse 9, there's, two, there, there's spiritual wisdom and understanding. And that's really what those words mean. It means, um, how do I practically live this out? It's talking about like application. How do I live out the knowledge of God's will in my everyday life? Which really leads us to Paul's second request in this prayer. So, verse 10. He says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so his first ask was that we'd have spiritual intelligence. His next ask is that the church would grow in practical obedience. That is his heart for the church, practical obedience. So he uses the word walk. The word walk is the biblical word for basically how you do your life. So as you are walking the path of life, use the moments that you have to live in a way that is worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him. So what does it actually mean to live worthy of the Lord? What that means is that the way that I live my life is magnifying Jesus, like helping other people see Jesus and know him. It's really making Jesus so great in your life. It's like you're walking around and you have the name of Jesus up in lights over you so that people see that and are drawn into him. That's what it means to live a life worthy of the Lord. So Paul, again, first prays for spiritual intelligence. That would then lead to practical obedience. And those things always have to go hand in hand. I mean, we're not just supposed to know the Bible to know it. It has to be lived out. And I love how Kyle Eidelman, he's a pastor, he explains this in his book. It's called Not a Fan. Um, And the heart means we want to be a follower of Jesus. Um, We don't want to be a fan. So listen to how he explains our need to live out um, what we hear from God. He gives this example. He says, Imagine my family goes on a mission trip together for a month, and we have a young married couple come and house sit for us. Before we leave, I give them a notebook with 10 or 12 pages of fairly detailed instructions for taking care of the house and the pets. I tell them when to water the plants. I write out where to find the food for the cat and how much food to give it. I remind them to get the mail. I explain that trash day is early on Thursday morning. I inform them that the downstairs toilet overflows and clearly state where the shutoff valve is just in case. When I give the notebook to the couple, they commit to doing what it says. Okay, everyone following me so far? Okay. Now I want you to imagine I come back and all the plants are dead. The garage is full of trash, the toilet has been overflowing for days, and the basement is flooded. Then I look in the backyard, and there's a little gravesite where the cat has been buried, right? <laughs> then the couple who's been house-sitting comes up and explains how helpful that notebook was. In fact, they memorized certain sections. I can even see where they highlighted different areas. They informed me that they even went over parts in the notebook every night before going to bed. Man, that proves the point, right? It's funny, but it's also very convicting. Because that's the way that so many of us live our Christianity. Like we read this, we underline it, and that's where we stop. But it's all about living it out. The Bible is not just something to study, but something to be practically lived out. And I feel like the problem is that somewhere along the way, we divided listening and obeying into two separate things. 
Really, we need to start seeing them again as one. So when it comes to the Lord, to listen and to learn is also to obey. James 1.22, a verse some of you may know, but it says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And so here's some more good questions for us to wrestle through. When you approach God's word, are you looking and listening for what the Holy Spirit might point out to you as far as what you need to be walking in obedience or how you need to be walking in obedience? Are you looking for what the Holy Spirit would, you know, prick your heart to say, hey, this is a way that you can walk more closely with Jesus? And then are you open as you go throughout your day, like looking for those opportunities? How can I put into practice what I just read? Because that's what the heart of this is all about. Our goal is to grow more and more in knowledge of God's will so that we can become better and better followers of Jesus. So look back at verse 10. He says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, and then he just says, Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Bearing fruit in every good work. What he's getting at there is he desires the church in Colossae to be productive for the kingdom of God, to be fruitful for the kingdom of God, and that's God's heart for us too. And he says every good work. He's not talking about works that lead to salvation. We know that is impossible. It is only through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection we can be saved. But as followers of Jesus, God has prepared in advance for us good works to walk in, which is what Paul talks about in Ephesians, this whole idea that God has prepared for us good works to do, to glorify him, to magnify him, and show him. And that's what Paul is getting at. And then the end of it, it's just interesting how it goes back to increasing in the knowledge of God because that was there earlier and we talked about it. But what happens here, this is the way that Paul wants us to understand is that the more we grow in knowledge of God, the more that we choose to obey, then the more we're going to grow in our knowledge of God because through our obedience, we get to know God even better. And so that's what he is saying. I've heard this multiple times. Like if you want to know God in your life, if you want to experience more of your God in your life, and live out what he says to do. And there is so much truth in that. I remember the first time that I experienced this. I was a college student, and um, I had surrendered to, fully to Jesus, my Lord and Savior, and God was teaching me a lot about confession. He was teaching me a lot about um, authenticity, walking in the light, asking forgiveness. And during this time, I got really convicted about my need to go and confess to my science teacher in high school. So I'm not proud of this, but in high school, I cheated on multiple science tests, and it was not good. And so it's interesting because the Lord kind of brought that up when I was just learning about confession. And so what I did is I ended up going back to my high school, waited to the end of the day, walked in, I was outside of his classroom. He was talking to a student. He walked out. I walked in. And what you got to know is I went to a huge high school, like massive high school. He had no idea who I was. This was like a few years ago. And I just really came in and said, you know, like, I'm, I'm following Jesus. I feel convicted. I have to tell you, I cheated on multiple tests in your class. And I, get, I mean, it was awkward. It was weird, you know. But he listened and he, you know, said, I forgive you. I don't know if they can, like, take back my diploma. I don't know if it works like that. But anyway, what was interesting is, had I not done that, I know that Jesus would have paid for that sin. Uh, Jesus' blood paid for all of that in my life. But through being obedient to God, I learned about the goodness of walking in the light. 
I learned about the goodness that God has for us in confession, about owning our stuff, about being willing to ask for forgiveness. And because of that, that has kind of been a pattern in my life because I just, I don't want to keep stuff inside. It's not that I'm perfect. I'm, you know, making mistakes, sinning all the time, but I'm trying to live openly in the light. And I've learned that about God through that experience. And so, if you haven't been feeling God lately, if you haven't been enjoying your relationship with Him, if you're not getting anything out of your, His Word, maybe it's time to ask the question, am I following through on what God has called me to do? An old friend of mine, uh, Randy Strode, used to say, what's the last thing God asked you to do and did you do it? That always goes around in my head. What's the last thing God asked you to do? Did you do it? And um, it's a good question for all of us to think about. And it's really, you know, what the writer of Hebrews is getting at when he says, today if you hear the voice of the Lord, don't harden your hearts. If you know that God is asking you to do something, don't just turn the volume down on God's voice because you may not be hearing him then, you know? So it's seeking your heart and saying, God, what are you asking me to do? And then being willing to follow through with obedience. If you can't hear him, maybe ask that question, God, is there something you've been leading me to do that I'm just not being willing to do? See what he says. Let's look at the last part of Paul's prayer, uh, verse 11. He says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. I love how Paul, at the end of his prayer, he goes back to the truth that we are called to live a life that is worthy of the Lord, pleasing of the Lord, but we cannot do that on our own. The only way that we live that life is being strengthened by the power of his glorious might, his spirit working in and through our lives. It's his spirit in us. And the Holy Spirit is not only there to help us with our outward actions, he is also there to impact the inward affections of our heart, working Christ-like character in all of us. And that's really the heart of Paul's last request. So his first was for spiritual intelligence. His second was for practical obedience. And now he ends with asking for Christ-like character in the hearts of the believers. And all three of those things are linked. Like as we grow in our understanding of God, that should then lead us to obedience, to what the Lord is calling us to. And the more that we walk in obedience, the more a Christ-like character is formed within our heart. And I love how he prays that they'd be strengthened with God's power. And then he mentions um, patience, you know, and he mentions endurance. And I just, I find that interesting. Because when I hear like strengthen with God's power, I'm thinking miracles, I'm thinking courage, I'm thinking boldness, I'm thinking, you know, like doing these incredible things for God in the midst of really difficult circumstances. I'm not thinking strengthen for patience, but that's what he says. Uh, I love this other quote by Warren Wearsby again. Uh, I think we'll have it up on the screen. He says, we usually think of God's glorious power being revealed in great feats of daring, the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, David leading a victorious army, or Paul raising the dead. But the emphasis here is on Christian character, patience, long-suffering, joyfulness, thanksgiving. And I love this last line. The inner victories of the soul are just as great, if not greater, than the public victories recorded in the annals of history. I love that idea, the inner victories of the soul. Paul is praying that the church in Colossae would experience those victories, 
And God also wants us to experience those too. So specifically, he talks about endurance. Endurance is the ability to stand firm, being steadfast. It's, I have my eyes fixed on the prize. My eyes are fixed on Jesus, and I am continuing to go toward him no matter what. Um, and that's, that's really the heart. Uh, one quote that I found so interesting was that um, it's Charles Spurgeon, and he's saying, the only way the snail made it on the ark was through endurance, you know? <laughs> And that's the heart of a Christian, is I am going, and it's the Holy Spirit inside of me that helps me to do that. And then he says patience. Patience, for some of us, is truly a miracle from the Lord, right? Let's just be honest. An incredible inner victory of the soul. Patience is the ability to not get easily, to not get easily annoyed when things happen and they don't go our way, to not get thrown off course. It's the ability to live a surrendered life to know that people will not always work on my schedule, and that's okay. And that is a miracle for us because everything in our flesh does not want that to happen. And so how are you doing with patience today? You need more of an inner victory of the Holy Spirit. You know, when I was younger, I was not patient at all. I didn't like waiting, and I really didn't like waiting on people if it meant that I was going to be late. That just like drove me insane, and I, I didn't want to be late anywhere. But the Lord has been working in my heart through patience, but I know there's room to grow because he says patience with joy. Did you catch that? Patience with joy. It's not just that, you know, like I'm waiting and I'm okay and I'm not going to freak out. <laughs> it's like in the midst of that, I have joy that bubbles up with me through the Holy Spirit because I've realized that my life is not my own. My time is not my own. If I get there late, it's okay because God's getting there late with me. It's that kind of mentality. And that's what he is praying for there. And specifically, you know, that's, those are light examples. But there's also a time where we just need patience in the midst of really hard things. Like, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm still trusting and waiting on you because I know that you are faithful. And then he ends just talking about giving thanks. Specifically, he prays that they would give thanks to the Father who has qualified them. And this is kind of how he ends. And this is kind of what we've seen, his pattern. At the end, he kind of goes back to a reminder of the gospel that it is the Father in heaven who has qualified us for, uh, for heaven to be there. It's not about us. It's about him. And so going back to what we talked about today, like, yes, we are called to grow in our knowledge of God. Yes, we are called to live a life that is worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him. Yes, we are called to grow in Christ-like character. But will we fail at all of those things? Absolutely. And if we fail, does that disqualify us from our inheritance in heaven? The answer is absolutely not, because God is the one that qualifies us. We are qualified for heaven because Jesus lived perfectly, and we receive that perfection in our place, because Jesus died on the cross to pay for all of our sin, and we receive that. And he rose again, conquering death, assuring that we would then be with him forever. God is the one who qualifies us, and that's how Paul just wraps up his prayer as a reminder to the church. It's really all about God, what he has done on our behalf. And so that's really Paul's prayer. So my challenge for you this week is, as we've been challenging you every single week, Paul, pray as Paul prays. So three ways to pray this week. Pray that you grow in the knowledge of God's will, meaning, God, help me to see the bigger purpose and the bigger plan and how I fit into that. Secondly, pray that you grow in obedience, practical obedience, 
that you live a life worthy of the Lord because of his spirit and power in you. And then do what Paul prays, that there would be Christ-like character that would form in you, that would lead you in endurance and patience and joy and the gifts of the spirit. That's Paul's heart for them. That's God's heart for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you that it teaches us about so much and it, it teaches us about even how to pray. God, I thank you that, um, you know, we're, we're reading about Paul, this, this man who had this incredible experience with you, this man that you used to do incredible things, and yet he comes back to you. It's all about God's power working in you. It's not about you. And Father, I just pray that we as a church would grow in our prayer lives, that we'd grow in our dependency on you and just welcome your spirit to work in us and then through us with the way that we live our lives. You are the one that deserves all the glory for this incredible gift we have in Jesus. And so we just worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.